This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 94, April the 5th, 1985. Well, uh, this afternoon I'm going to begin by telling you about an incident that occurred to me, I think 46, 48 years ago, not long after the war, when Truman was president. Something I read reminded me of it, an incident I had long since forgotten. In a state, a couple of states removed from California, I was asked in one small city to be the speaker at a gathering of a large number of the businessmen of the community. What they wanted to hear about was the character and prodigality of the federal government, its propensity to pushing people around, and the growing sense of tyranny that people felt. Well, I was glad to speak to a group of businessmen on this subject, and so I prepared to do so. I drove more than a hundred miles to go there uh, at the appointed date, some two, three months later, in order to speak. It was a noon meeting. Unhappily, between the time I was invited by these businessmen, all on the conservative side, all more or less uh, evangelical churchgoers or um, substantial Catholics, you know, the uh, good people of the community. Something had happened in the intervening time. There was a military base nearby. It had been closed. When the war ended and the base was closed, the businessmen said they were glad to see it go. It had been a nuisance. Dealing with the base was a problem. Things were ordered. Payment delayed endlessly. And the base had been closed, I think, a year, perhaps two years, and some of them were still filling out forms to get paid for work they had done early in the war or midway in the war. So they had earlier expressed a great deal of disgust with their first real contact with the federal government. However, when I arrived, it was a different picture. The uh, meeting room at the hotel was crawling with much beribboned military men. The base was going to be reactivating, and all the businessmen in the community were there and uh, salivating at the prospect of the millions that were going to be poured into the community as a result of its reopening. And there I was to talk about the subject as they had viewed it a few months before. <laughs> I never have had a reception as cold as the one I received that day. The program chairman was embarrassed at introducing me. The entire audience was pained at having to hear what they had to hear. And... It was a distinctly cool reception. 
they all felt that it was very much in bad taste that such a program had been scheduled when all these fine military men were present. Of course, the problem was their convictions were not as great as their greed. Of course, we have a like problem today. People talk about our huge defense budget, but what they don't talk about is the fact that we have bases in most of our congressional districts not in terms of any defense purposes, but in order to spend federal funds in that area. The result is devastating. Too much of our defense budget goes to provide funds for the various congressional districts in the way of useless bases, and too little towards our protection in time of war. We are not adequately prepared simply because our defense budget is less a defense budget and more a spending budget to satisfy Congress. Well, my reason for remembering that episode was a book that I began browsing in and plan to read in great detail very soon a book published in 1982 by Franklin Watts, a New York and uh, London, Toronto, and Sydney publisher, A Constitutional History of the United States by Forrest MacDonald, with the assistance of Ellen S. MacDonald. MacDonald is always a good writer. And the thing about this book is that as he deals with the Constitution and then the uh, trials of the Constitution over the years, the early constitutional issues, the federal-state relations, the Constitution and the developing economic order, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the freedmen, industrialization, and more, he comes finally to the Constitutional Revolution, 1937 to 57 and on, and then in the concluding section deals with the breakdown of the Constitution. In dealing with the breakdown of the Constitution, he deals with the role of the legislative, executive, and judiciary branches but he begins with the people because the people have demanded a right to preferred treatment. Minority, racial, ethnic, women, consumers, homosexuals, the poor, defenders of the environment, and so on and on. This is why the Constitution is breaking down. There is no one concerned with a general good we have now these self-proclaimed spokesmen for rights, and they are destroying the country. This leads us to another matter. One of the th questions I received in the 
past few weeks was from uh, Bill and Betty Fellerson asking about the particular strength that the United States has had in its history and what was the reason for it. Well, I have in part dealt with the character of the immigration to the United States. Let's reassess that immigration. One of the things we need to recognize is this. Most of the people in this country, white and black, have a background of slavery. Now, the slavery of the white uh, element is known as serfdom. We need to remember that outside of England, serfdom still prevailed in Europe, that the serfs were only freed in the last century. Moreover, we need to recognize that the condition in many a country of the serfs was far worse than that of the slaves in the South. As a result, most of the people who came to this country came from a background of bondage, of serfdom, or religious persecution. Even the English migrants came from a background of great poverty equal to that of the European serfs. These people came over here and very quickly imbibed the Puritan work ethic. The Puritan work ethic was so powerful in this country that even by the end of the last century, it was difficult for a man to retire on his wealth in this country. By the end of the century, this was becoming possible. But mostly they went to Europe. To live without working was regarded somehow as unmanly, ungodly. This meant, therefore, that there was an impetus to progress here that did not exist elsewhere. This work ethic gave us an advantage. It was not because in the United States the things manufactured were better. By and large, they were not. England produced much more in the way of quality goods. But America produced things for the common man. It had a belief that uh, things should be produced cheaply for use by people and to be affordable by the people. Moreover, there was another aspect. The people who came here had a country they had left because they wanted rid of it. They had their loyalties, but they were glad to be gone from wherever they came from. The Huguenots, who had come very early, by the way, were so bitter towards France that they changed and anglicized their names so that we are not aware of the Huguenots amongst us, nor are their descendants aware of their past because 
their names have been anglicized. This meant that however much they loved their mother tongue and the heritage of their culture in the old country, they had a deeper loyalty to the new. There were exceptions to this, but by and large, this was true. Now, what we have seen in this century is a shift in that perspective. Remember that the great age of immigration was up to 1920. It was then that masses of people were coming into this country from the founding of the Republic to 1920. We Americanized them. They became a part of this country readily and eagerly. What has happened in this century is that old loyalties have been different. In other words, people have had a loyalty to another country and have been eager to influence uh, the United States and its foreign policy in terms of the old loyalty. We have seen this, first of all, in the days before World War I and the feeling of the German community then and in the 30s about our move to war against Germany. Now, this is not to say that we are wise in going to war. I'm simply saying that out of loyalty for the old country, the German community did offer a substantial resistance. They were hostile, for example, in the 30s to an anti-German uh, campaign or war, not because of a pro-Nazi character, but because they did not want to see Germany hurt again. This is an understandable feeling. But it was the beginning of what increasingly has marked American politics. Minority groups have become very vocal in wanting to redirect American foreign policy. This has been true of the Poles, for example, and it's entirely understandable again. It has been true of the Jewish community, again understandable. But this has created a problem with these and with other groups. Your Hispanics, your Asiatics, everyone. The United States must carry on a foreign policy geared to the needs of justice and the United States. We cannot intermeddle into all the affairs of the world to take care of every nation because we have people from that country who have a voting block in this country. That has been highly detrimental. It has been a part of precisely the kind of thing I referred to earlier, what Forrest MacDonald wrote about. The breakdown of the Constitution because of the breakdown of the people. 
their special interests now prevail over their feelings of loyalty to this country and their sense of what really is right and wrong here. This has been a very dangerous development in recent years, and it has done a great deal of harm to the strength of the United States. In the past, these diverse groups have made important contributions to our culture. They are continuing to do so in most cases. The problem is when their loyalties begin to govern their view of what American foreign policy should be. The result is we do not have as free a foreign policy as we should have. Now, on to another subject. I have at the typesetters now a book on Christianity and the state. And it is a subject that greatly interests me. I may do a second book on the subject. There is so much to be said there that one volume barely scratches the surface. And to deal with this, we have to go back to the medieval era, a seminal era for Western civilization. We are still in revolt against the medieval era, and a good many of our problems stem from this fact. Before I read something to you, I'd like to uh, make a point. Sometimes we have to wage a necessary battle against certain forces. The medieval church had to wage a battle against the power of the Holy Roman Emperor and the various monarchs. One of the dangers of such a battle is that sometimes it leads us to overkill. The results of overkill can be deadly because even that which is killed can have an impact on the future of history. Now to a book written some years ago. Uh, I believe in 1940, at least in its uh, English translation, Gerd Tellenbach, Church, State, and Christian Society at the Time of the Investiture Contest. To quote from uh, Tellenbach's very, very important study, at his anointing, the emperor, that is the Holy Roman Emperor, was as an expression of this inner change, uh, whereby, parenthetically, he was to become a new man and given over to the service of God. The emperor was received into the ranks of the clergy. The emperor became a canon of St. Peter's in Rome, and the kings of Europe usually had canon held canonries in several chapters. 
Henry II, for example, in the cathedral chapter of uh, Magdeburg, Strasbourg, and Bamberg. Now, let me add that the king was told that he was not a priest, but he did have, you might say, a sub-priestly place in the hierarchy of the church. This was a very important fact. What it witnessed to was that the emperor was under God, that his task was a religious one, that inescapably he was a basic and key factor in Christian civilization. What happened with the investiture struggle was this. The emperors and the monarchs had usurped many a prerogative of the church. They were naming bishops and abbots. They were controlling vast segments of the church. They were investing the bishops and abbots and much, much more. They were, thereby, to a great degree, destroying the church. They were reducing it to a tool of the state. The church had to fight against this. To a degree, the church won, but essentially, the church lost. Because while the state made certain concessions, it also exacted a number of prices for those concessions, which meant that not only did the state retain much of its power, but it began increasingly to control the Vatican itself. However, where the church made a serious mistake was in de-Christianizing political office. The church was rightfully angry at the fact that the state was taking over portions of the church. And while elements of the religious nature of political office were retained, for example, in the coronation rites, to a great degree, the emperor and the monarchs were pushed out of the church. Their offices de-Christianized. The result was that the rulers progressively began to seek non-theological justification for their powers. And so you had the development of a theology of the state in which Christ was left out, in which the church did not figure. And this theology of the state became progressively a natural theology. It became finally enlightenment thinking 
in which right reason was seen as the province of the state. And man then regarded Christianity as something no longer essential to the body politic, no longer central to the life of man. The church, which symbolically and realistically had been at the center of the community, now was on the edges. So the zeal to keep the rulers from dominating the church led to some real damage here. Now to turn to another book, an older one again, because some of the things I've uh, been working on have brought these things to my mind. A book by Peter Gay, The Party of Humanity, Essays in the French Enlightenment, published in 1964, is a book which represents a thoroughly non-Christian perspective. Peter Gay is a great admirer of the Enlightenment and its philosophes. But he calls attention to this fact. The philosophes had two enemies, the institutions of Christianity and the idea of hierarchy. And they had two problems, God and the masses. Both the enemies and the problems were related and woven into the single task of rethinking their world. End of quote. Very important point. What the Enlightenment did, of course, was to develop a perspective of man as essentially a rational animal and a political animal, and it sought to create a new society. It began with a self-conscious perspective on its leadership, the elite, a Neoplatonic conception. These were to be the philosopher kings. England was ruled for a long time by a clique of people, as were all the other countries. But England at least claimed a parliamentary system. The idea was that the elite should rule. A term very popular in the 18th century was decorum. It was a word that came out of the exaltation by Europe of Chinese culture. It was, so to speak, an imported Confucian idea. Confucianism talked about propriety. Taoism in China spoke about the yang and the yin, that your position depended upon the situation. You adapted yourself. The idea of decorum meant that you did what was fitting. It was essentially an idea derived from the face culture of the Orient. As a result, instead of Christian character, the concept of decorum 
by an aristocracy dominated Europe. What happened with the 19th century revolutions was that basically this concept of decorum or the emphasis on appearance was democratized. As a result, styles became mass styles with everyone trying to imitate in the fashions those at the top. And as soon as the imitation caught on the bottom, it was abandoned at the top. The people at the top trying to retain their elite role and the people on the bottom trying to become a part of the elite in their imitation of the fashion. In this country, there was a curious development. I indicated earlier the very different character, the work ethic, which prevailed here. However, the concept of an aristocracy and elite developed in this country. There were two sources in this development. One was the South. In the South, the settlers were able, because of the different type of farming, to establish very large holdings. These holdings, compared to those of uh, leading aristocrats and noblemen in England, were equal to theirs and larger. This gave many of the powerful men in the South the idea that they were an aristocracy. They began to play the role of an aristocracy and in many cases to claim to be related to the nobility of England. There was a great deal of pretension here. So there was a tension and conflict in the South which has never entirely gone away between those who like to think of themselves as an old and deeply rooted aristocracy and those who are yeoman farmers, common people from England and Scotland who later came to be called contemptuously rednecks because there was a gap between them and the self-styled aristocracy. The other area where you had an aristocracy in the United States was New York. The Dutch uh, patricians, patroons, who had large estates there, had established them not with any religious motive. They were not fleeing persecution, had no problems in the old country. They were there to make their mark, to become wealthy. And they did establish an aristocracy and a self-styled elite. In the latter half of the last century, a southerner, Ward McAllister, going to New York, helped the old line families of New York, both some with an English background and many with the Dutch background, to establish an exclusive set of 400. The coaching, the standards came from the South. 
the members of it were New York Society. As a result, you've had uh, this European element coming in, this idea of aristocracy, of an elite, and at the same time the emphasis on decorum. One of the things that the English visitors to the United States always remarked upon was their dislike of the American lack of taste, meaning a lack of an aristocracy. They did not, did not like the uh, rather popular culture that prevailed in the United States and were very, very hostile to it. In recent years, of course, we have had a kind of uh, reverse emphasis, which began after World War II in the late 50s. You remember, with the war over and the Depression over, tastes in uh, things changed suddenly. Everyone felt flush. They wanted to forget the Depression. Immediately after the war, one manufacturer, still thinking in terms of the Depression, brought out a car which I don't see anymore, although it should be a classic. The Plymouth of the late 40s to about 51, I think. A remarkable car. It ran forever. Very economical. It was designed to be an economy car. But nobody wanted economy cars, and Plymouth almost went under. What happened instead was the tail fin cars, extra extravagant and pretentious, succeeded. What happened then? Well, <laughs> the intellectuals then went for the VW, the bug. They were the first ones to adopt it. It was a kind of inverse snobbery. There was nothing wrong with the VW or the bug. It was a good car. When it caught on, of course, they dropped it for another kind of car. This represented something that developed first in the 20s, a love of primitivism. Of course, this preceded the French Revolution in France. This uh, sophisticated uh, affectation of primitivism. To give you an idea of uh, how far some people went with it, let me read to you something from Malcolm Cowley's uh, Exile's Return, a literary odyssey of the 1920s, published uh, first in 1934. He says this, Some of the year-round country dwellers, he is talking now about the literary elite, mentioned in this narrative, held out for a long time against modern conveniences, although most of them yielded in the end. Robert Coates wired his house for electricity and installed a bathroom in 1938. 
Kenneth Burke had no electricity in his New Jersey farmhouse until 1949. Even with a power line 30 feet from the front door. His excuse for yielding at last was that he couldn't buy good kerosene any longer. Philip Hillier Smith, the author of Perennial Harvest, still spends his winters in Sherman without conveniences of any sort except a pump in the kitchen across from the wood-burning stove. So, <laughs> uh, together with this, you've had the quest for uh, land which is virgin from tourists by all kinds of wealthy travelers. I recall in the mid-60s hearing a very, very wealthy couple I met once talk with enthusiasm about this out-of-the-way place they went to. They spent several months a year traveling all over the world, and they were ecstatic. No tourist had ever been to this place before. Uh, there was no plumbing, of course. Uh, there were fleas in the bed. But, oh, it was so quaint and adorable. <laughs> well, <laughs> so much for that sort of thing. Well, on to something else. John Lofton sent me a number of pages from the Federal Register for March 11, 1965. Volume 50, number 47, pages 9,614 to, oh, umpteen something. And uh, it's about procedure and administration, restrictions on church tax inquiries, and examinations. The IRS here gives regulations for church tax inquiries. Well, John, you asked for my comment. I'd have to tell you that to be able to comment on this, I would have to consult a lawyer and then take what he says with a grain of salt because... Another lawyer might very well disagree. The only clear-cut statement is that a church does not include separately incorporated church-supported schools or other organizations incorporated separately from the church. The rest is so much of the usual IRS double-talk that I do not see how any church could cope with such a situation without endless legal expense. And that's the problem today. Just a statement in the Federal Register, and whether it's a church, your business, your home, your private life, is subjected to so much regulation that it takes a battery of lawyers to find out what those regulations mean. But they are like a new surround your neck. We're far gone. Believe me, we are far gone. There is no longer a question of saving this country. Our only hope is to reconstruct it. A few days ago, one of our 
bantam hens who had laid some eggs and was nesting in our woodpile and somehow survived bobcats and coyotes prowling around, hatched out ten little chicks. She sat there, by the way, through rain and snow. On occasion, when I went out to see how she was doing, because she would not be moved, it was hard to see her, the snow was so heavy on her. But she hatched them out. Ten little bantams. Marvelous things to hold. And our grandson, Isaac, Mark's uh, son, kept exclaiming as we picked them up to put them in a coop, how soft and tiny they were. Life is wonderful. And when a culture moves against life and becomes a killer of life, you have to say it's dead. It's suicidal. You're not going to do anything but say, well, these are the dead. Let the dead bury the dead. We're going to have to rebuild in the ruins. We are killing an, a million and a half unborn babies every year. Now, don't tell me this is a good country when that is possible. We have a great many good people, godly people, and their power is growing, and we're going to rebuild something here. But what exists is dead. There's a death sentence against it, self-pronounced because of what they have done. Well, now from uh, John Taylor's Crop News, which is a California leaflet. I quote, San Francisco could have mounted a strong case for its existing hiring of minority and women firefighters, but caved in to federal pressure, which will produce a program for the next eight years where skin, color, and sex will count for everything, ability for next to nothing. Soon test scores will be posted for 1,500 recruits competing for 72 jobs. Normally those jobs would go to the candidates with the top scores, but that isn't going to happen. The man who finished first will have no better chance of being hired than the man who finished 400th, perhaps a worse chance if he is white. Under a complicated formula, the first 400 men on that list of 1,500 will be put in a pool, in effect as if they had tie scores, with race then becoming the prime determinant in hiring. In addition, 18 women will be hired, even though all finished in the bottom third of the class, and had to be given special treatment to pass the test at all. The same system will be applied to promotional tests for lieutenants and captains. The standards of firefighting personnel are being dropped, just at a time when a firefighter has to understand first aid, toxics, engineering, and other complicated skills. End of quote. 
Now, what happened there is happening to your fire department. If it hasn't yet happened, it will. Another item from the Crop News, and I quote again, If any of you readers suffer from high blood pressure, have a bad heart, or might be affected by anger or rage, it might be better if you skip this. The General Dynamics Corporation, the nation's largest military contractor, has not paid any income taxes since 1972, although the company reported more than $2 billion in profits during that time. Shareholders between 1979 and 83 have been paid more than $100 million in dividends. Unlike most other corporate dividends, the payments by General Dynamics are not taxable to the shareholders. While General Dynamics has been allowed to defer payment of more than $500 million of taxes from previous years, it has also accumulated losses of more than $3 billion in tax losses that can be carried forward to the year 1998. Thus, the company appears to have a possibility of paying no taxes for some years into the future. They utilize an accounting method which allows some companies with long-term contracts to deduct many expenses immediately, but defer almost indefinitely reporting any revenues or profits to the IRS. The Treasury Department has called such deferrals an interest-free loan. The average effective tax rate for the top 12 military contractors for the years 19. 81 to 83 was 1.5%, far below the statutory rate of 46%, and one of the lowest rates among all industries, unquote. Well, so much for the IRS. Now, to answer a question that someone raised about the passage of 1 Corinthians 14, Verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What is the meaning of this, and what is the role of uh, women that is uh, marked out here? First of all, it goes without saying that women are not to be ordained. Uh, This passage doesn't even deal with that because it is not in mind at all. Other passages have made it clear that it is men who are called. This has to do with something else. Uh, It is assumed, first of all, they are not speakers. They are in the meeting. The meeting is a teaching meeting. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. So, what is the uh, picture here? To understand what we have, let us remember that the church 
for the first couple of centuries at least, met in homes. People were invited by those who were Christians to come to these meetings. The pastor led the group in a study, very much as in a synagogue, of a portion of Scripture. There would then be a discussion in this home church meeting, and questions would be asked. And questions in particular were invited from the visitors, so that there were question and answers, and the pastor would attempt to explain the faith, answer questions, deal with questions the text raised. So what we have here is that in such a situation, the women are told, if you're going to learn anything, ask your husband at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. The picture is one of a kind of situation that I have encountered, especially in the 60s when I was doing a great deal of campus speaking and in the early 70s. One of the problems in any meeting where you have a group that are new to what you're saying or teaching is the women. The women create the disturbances. I had one speaking engagement a good many years ago at uh, an important university, a state university, and a woman professor in the audience decided that uh, what I had to say was unfit for the students to hear. And she got up and started to scream at me and demanded that I shut up and so on, that what I had to say shouldn't be heard on university premises. It was very difficult to continue. I had to tick her off pretty firmly, finally, and she made a thorough fool of herself. But the thing is, she took advantage of the fact that the men professors who were there were gentlemen, that I was being a gentleman. And she became more and more ugly and vicious. Now, this was an extreme example, but it's the kind of thing I've seen again and again. One of the things that marked the early church was this. The churches meeting in the home drew in particular young couples. There was a reason for it. The young couple, let us say in Rome or in Corinth or some other city of the time, just starting out in life and expecting their first baby, this was a critical time, would begin to look around them, see the flagrant immorality, the homosexuality, the degeneracy that was Rome. And they would say, oh, I don't want my child to be born into this kind of a world. There has to be something better. The result was that they were very often 
the most prominent of the inquirers in the uh, Bible study groups in these church homes. They would come eagerly because they wanted to know. But the problem was the women. This is why Paul brings this point up. The women created the disturbances. They could take advantage then as now of the fact that uh, men who are godly, men who are gracious, are going to be hesitant about being unkind to a woman. So Paul says that uh, if they're going to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. To speak in this sense, this critical sense, this uh, hostile sense, they are to be under obedience. However, if it is a Bible study group, a closed group, and it's Christians, and a Christian woman is asking a question to learn, there I believe it's a different situation. Paul is dealing with those who are not under obedience, but a woman who in a spirit of obedience wants to grow represents something different. Now to something else. A book I finished recently is a book I think you would be very much interested in. Our time is running out, but I'm going to deal with this in the book notes as well. It's a textbook, but it is very readable by those who are not uh, students. It is by Tom Rose, Economics, The American Economy from a Christian Perspective. It was published just this year by American Enterprise Publications, RD6, Box 6690, Mercer, Pennsylvania, 16137, and the cost is 1895. While there are one or two minor points that uh, I would disagree with, there is so much here that I most emphatically agree with and regard as superb that I strongly urge you to get and read this book. It is a delight. Tom Rose has written a book which is thoroughly Christian, and he again and again throws uh, light on much that has happened in this country because he does write with the American scene in mind. One of the points he makes, of course, is that when the economy has problems, it's the culprit, the federal government, which again and again tries to play the hero and (laughs) claims that it has stepped into the picture to remedy things. I strongly urge you to get and read this carefully. 
It covers things from uh, a biblical perspective. Well, our time is about up. Very briefly, let me see if I can uh, touch on some other things. Uh, by the way, uh, a letter from Eugene Newman, one of you, um, calls attention to the fact that uh, as Howard Phillips' conservative manifesto for April states, uh, Max Campbellman has been named to head the U.S.-Soviet disarmament negotiations. Uh, but as an advisor to Walter Mondale's presidential campaign, was party to positions which called for, among other things, delaying the deployment of weapons, scrapping the MX, scrapping the B-1, and uh, so on. Campbellman was a conscientious objector, uh, and sees himself as a pacifist. And as uh, Eugene Newman goes on to say, using the standard that not only what we do must be right, it must be seen as being the right thing, I would respectfully ask the committee to comment on the above and to address the problem from the standpoint of integrity and accountability, that is, the Committee on the Present Danger. Mr. Campbellman may indeed be an able negotiator and general counsel. These abilities notwithstanding, we should expect him to act on his beliefs. And as he concludes, our time is short, if Mr. Campbellman's past is dead and buried, then we need to know more about his beliefs presently and what actions we can expect him to take in the future." Unquote. Then, uh, as an example of syncretism, mixing good and evil into a mishmash, I saw something in a California paper recently about the mixture of contemporary music and gospel music which it called Bebop, Swing, Psycho, Billy, Cajun, Gospel, Cowpunk. I don't know what to say about that. Well, our time is up. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. It's always a joy to have this time with you.